Amen. Thank you all for being here today. I did that in the first service and went over well, so I figured I'd do it again. Uh, I feel great, by the way, so I feel kind of left out with all the other pastors, but I feel great, so you're in for it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, man, I am really, really thankful for our worship team, man. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for our media team, every bit a part of our worship team as the ones that are up here on the stage. You may not see them, but I promise you, you, know, you wouldn't recognize them not being there if they weren't, uh, and so... Man, if you're thankful for those people that give so selflessly of their time uh, to provide what we see every single Sunday, what we get to experience, would you just give them a hand? Would you just let them know how much you feel, how we feel about them? Man, uh, I am so thankful uh, for that. I'm thankful for our ministry teams, uh, all of them. Uh, and, and I'll tell you this, if you are here today converting oxygen into carbon dioxide, uh, there is a ministry team that you can serve in this week. There is, there is a, you can get signed up today. There are ministry teams that we have that we call gateway uh, ministry teams where you can serve without being a member. Um, there are places that you can be put that we would love to, to, to help you to get plugged into, to be a part of what God is doing uh, in our church. If this church means a lot to you, man, we would love to see you serve uh, as well so that we can be more effective uh, for the kingdom. I, I'm also super thankful. We're coming off an amazing weekend. If you came to the marriage retreat in Franklin this weekend, would you just raise your hand if you were at the marriage retreat. Awesome, awesome. We had 20 different couples uh, that were there participating in that weekend. It was a lot of fun. We ate some good food. Man, we had some incredible uh, instruction through the word. We got to date our spouses that Friday night, which I think is so cool that we didn't have any type of uh, schedule. We literally got, got to date my spouse uh, on Friday night, and then we came back and went through all the hard stuff and got to argue on the way home. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, sometimes that's how it goes, right? When there's some things that need to, real conversations that need to be had. Uh, but, uh, but man, I'm so very thankful for everybody that did that and invested uh, in their marriage. Listen, we don't have a strong church without strong families, right? It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, uh, does not is not effective for the kingdom of God without strong families that are continuing uh, not only to love each other, to love their children, and to pass those things on. Uh, and so, and so, I'm thankful for all of you that that participated in that. Not trying to guilt trip anybody that wasn't there. Uh, we understand things come up, but we would love for you to do that in the future. Turn in your Bibles to Joel, Joel chapter one. Joel chapter 1, we're in our series of the first four books of the Minor Prophets, not necessarily in chronological order, uh, but the first four as they come, we come across them in the canon of Scripture, uh, and uh, the title of this series is Return. There is a clear teaching through the Minor Prophets where God is calling His people to return. And we don't return for the sake of returning. We don't return because we're supposed to. We return because what is also revealed in the Minor Prophets, while details can be hazy, prophecy is that way, right? Details can be hazy. When and where things happen can sometimes be misconstrued. But what is not 
possible to misconstrue is the character of God that we see gleaming through every single one of these books. And so it's near the heart of the writers. It's near our hearts as well. And we serve a God whose character does not change. We do not serve a different God than they served in Israel. We serve the same God who has revealed himself in different ways to us as they did back then. But we serve a God who is constant and unchanging. He is, as Thomas Aquinas would call him, the unmoved mover. We all are in motion. We are all in flux. We are all changing. He is the one thing in this world that we can count on to be consistent through the ages. And so when we find teachings about God and his character revealed through these minor prophets, we can take it to the bank that our God feels this way, is this way toward us as well. And so this is the idea of this return series. Last week we talked about probably the the second most known minor prophet, the book of Hosea, uh, probably second to Jonah, right? Everybody knows about the, you know, in VBS you'd made the the little plate that was the, the whale and the little guy that went in the plate, right? And he ate, ate the fish, right? Everybody knows the story of Jonah. But the story of Hosea is also very well known. In the book of Joel, however, we find a, a, a largely neglected book of the Bible. And so, and so in the book of Hosea, we found that God is a God who pursues us. We do unlovely things and we continue to do unlovely things. And listen, even, even within the context of a relationship with Christ, I have to be declared righteous because I am not righteous, right? I still continue to sin, but God has changed me. Not on the outside, he's changed me on the inside and that is beginning to work its way out. To the outside. And so he is a God who pursues us in our unloveliness. But today in the book of Joel we will see that he's not just a God who pursues us. He is a God who restores. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you've been through this last year, two years. As our country has gone through all the turmoil that it has gone through. But God is a God who redeems and restores. And we can take that to the bank. If we would respond in him, he will respond in kind and he will restore us. We don't know a whole lot about the writer Joel, about the prophet Joel. We know that he is the son of a man named Pethuel. Well, who is Pethuel? That's a great question. We don't know. All right? So if you're looking for information on Joel, you're going to have to look elsewhere than the text of Scripture because it doesn't we just simply does not say. Um, we know that he prophesied primarily to the southern kingdom. So the kingdom of Judah, remember they're divided. And so we know that he spoke primarily and prophesied primarily to Judah. But we're not really sure about the date. We don't know when he did. The only reason why we know is he refers to Jerusalem uh, quite often. And so we, we can astutely surmise that that is what... That is where he prophesied. But we don't know when he did. And so I've got a proposed timeline. And I'll just, look, y'all, this is embarrassing, but I want y'all to see it because I'm just the way I am. I went and purchased a pointer. See that? That looks that works really well until you do this. 
nothing. So that is, oh, look, a cursor. Hey, how about that? I didn't even know that was a thing. We can do it. Uh, so if you look on the far left of this, I'm sorry, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a dummy, and sometimes I just like for people to know how big of a dork that you are allowing to lead you. Um, you see Joel right there on the far left. We believe either one of two possibilities really uh, make the most sense. One is it was one of the earliest of the writings, or it could have been over. You see Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, there you go. Oh, yeah, now to the left of them, just a little. Eh, get over it. Nope, other left. There you go. Somewhere around in there, all right? So we think it could be in one of those two spots is typically what you'll find. He's either one of the earliest or one of the latest. I tend to believe that he is one of the earliest. So this is the timeline that I tend to agree with, and I am in disagreement with some of the pastors of Lindsay Lane, right? Like we, that's it. Nobody knows, and it does, it's not really important. Here's why we know that it was either first or last. There's 73 verses in the book of Joel. Of those 73 verses, 27 phrases are repeated throughout the other prophets. So either Joel was a major source for those prophets, or Joel used those prophets as significant sources. Does that make sense? So that's why we know it's one of the two. I tend to believe it's an earlier writing, but it doesn't really matter. And really, when you look at the message that Joel brings, he kind of acts like it doesn't matter. He's like, yeah, here's my dad, but I don't really care if you know anything about me. I've got bigger fish to fry. Hey, y'all listen up, right? I've got bigger things to communicate to you than just who I am and, and, and who's my mom and them, right? Like, I got bigger things to tell you about. I've got to tell you about the day of the Lord and how our God restores us time and time again. And so what we see in Joel is a very important, timely message on things that are largely unclear. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about today is the consequences of man's rebellion. We see it very clearly in Joel chapter 1. We see a land that God had promised to his people looking very unlike the land that he described. Joel chapter 1 verse 2. Listen to what it says. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation, right? Pass it down through what? The family. Family's important. What the cutting locust left... The swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts have eaten. And what those hopping locusts have left, the destroying locusts has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And its fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine. It has splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 
The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house. The grain offering uh, are, are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Well, O vine dressers, for what the wheat and the barley For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Father, give us understanding of your word. God, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. And what you would have to share with us today. In the obscurity of some of the things that we'll talk about, God, let us understand and trace your heart and your great love. Not just for your people Israel, but for us even today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So... I am not the most technologically savvy person in the world, okay? Um, My dad is actually the least technologically savvy. Like, they've done studies, he's the worst. Um, Not really, and he's probably going to hear this, and he's probably going to be offended at first, and he's going to realize that I'm right, and he's going to be like, yeah, you know what, he's kind of right. My dad, he calls me to fix technological problems, that is the blind, yeah, my worship pastor's laughing at me, all right? I didn't know you could put a cursor up here, and I didn't know that a pointer would, you know, not show up on a TV. Um, so, yeah, but dad, I have seen my dad uh, do something. Even as limited knowledge as he has of technology, uh, I have seen him succumb to something that many a man has probably succumbed to, and, and truthfully, I myself have. Uh, it is what my mom and my wife refer to as the Facebook black hole. Uh, what that is, is a chain of videos that I didn't realize I couldn't live without. I had no idea that if I watch a hydraulic press repetitively break different things that I'll not be able to look away for 30 minutes. I did not know that about myself. Literally, Facebook, you can say what you want to about how creepy some of those algorithms are. They are good at what they do. I didn't know that that had it happened in me. And I've seen my dad, and we, we talk about it, we joke about it all the time. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that have, has caught my eye in recent days is the restoration videos where somebody will take like this super rusted piece of junk and just just incredible craftsmanship things that I I don't have the tools that they have don't even know what to call the tools that they have that they're doing it with and definitely don't have the know-how to completely restore like a bread slicer like I didn't even know that was a thing but I will sit there and watch a 15 minute video on somebody restoring a bread slicer because it's just really cool there's something about something that is decrepit and ugly being transformed into something that is amazing right and something that is working and functioning as it should be 
What we find in the promised land is a very unpromising prospect, right? We find a hunk of junk, and it is going to require a significant amount of work to get it back to the land of prominence. Do you remember what God called the land of Canaan? What did he call it to his people? The promised land, right? The promised land. When the scouts were sent over, and they came back with a report. They had a very descriptive way of describing this land. They said it was a land that was what? Flowing with milk and honey, right? I think of Paul Grape saying, this sounds sticky, right, in front of the veggie tales. Uh, but what they meant by that was it was such a fertile land, like in the desert, in the sand, in the arid climate, it was such an anomaly that the land was so lush that livestock could graze on it as long as they wanted. You could have as much livestock as you wanted, so you would have as much milk from that livestock as you could possibly have, right? Like it, that, That's a whole other step. It's not just producing fruit, but we are producing stuff that sustains animal life that would give us milk. It's a land flowing with milk. It's not just that. It's a land flowing of honey, right? That literally, it's such a plush land that bees would inhabit it so that they would germinate they would do the thing that they do right and they would be able to exist in this arid very harsh climate this was a promised land a land of plenty so in, so incredible in fact that two men would have to carry a cluster of grapes out right like do you remember all the description of this land what i just read does not sound like the promised land right everything is dried up the milk and the honey is gone right everybody everything is laid waste fire has destroyed it all and so he uses this idea of locusts Right? I don't know if you knew this or not, but locust swarms is actually a pretty common occurrence throughout that region. Actually, from 2019 to 2000, 2021, which in my mind, as soon as I read it, I thought, of course, uh, there was like the most unprecedented amount of locusts that have ever come into the region of Egypt. Um, and so like the eastern part of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and India. Like from 2019 to 2021, it was like the, the biggest swarms of locusts they had ever seen that devoured all kinds of stuff. It was on the news. Uh, like really, really terrible circumstances. Well, Joel, whether he is talking about something that has happened currently or he's talking about something that was past or something that was in the future, he says the land looks like Locusts have devoured everything. But then he switches and he says, not just locusts, not just uh, locusts that have eaten all the vegetation, but, but an army has come against them. It has broken fig, the fig tree. It is, it, everything is just laid waste. It is ruin in the promised land. And what we know as we begin to piece together timeline is that God's people had broken the Mosaic Covenant. They had broken the covenant that God had given them to function within, right, to obey him. I'm reading through Deuteronomy right now, which is all the Mosaic Covenant, when Moses is talking to his people, and, and literally he is creating a list of things for the people not to do, and they do it, right? And so, and so because of that, this promised land, this fertile place has been completely ruined, uh, and so we don't, we don't know when and, and, and exactly what time he's referencing. This could be after they've been taken away into exile and they've been brought back and they look back at the land and think, man, this did not 
this land looks terrible, right? This land was not like it was when we were conquering Jericho and, and all of these things. Uh, I, I tend to believe that Joel is, is prophesying about something in the future. Probably the locust swarm was something they could remember. Do you remember the devastation of the locust swarm? Well, a, ma- a swarm. Imagine that times a billion with this other army that's coming in to sweep in, right? And said, so this is the result of your sin. This is the result of your rebellion. And so in your notes, rebellion against God always leads to ruin. There was a popular teaching of the day in Israel that because they were God's people, they could do whatever they wanted and they would never receive punishment. God would punish all the other nations, but they wouldn't really... And they they, they might slap them on the wrist, but but they, they wouldn't get the full brunt force of God's punishment. And what Joel is telling them is, this is not the picture that God has given me to give to you, right? And so if it's prophetic in nature, it's functioning kind of like how when I talk to my son, and sometimes we have to be creative in how we discipline our kids and how we warn them about the discipline that is coming to them. Uh, Cooper and Hudson always tell me if daddy's teeth don't move, that's when you know that I better get doing something. Right? So I'm like, son, if you don't move your tail right now. So if my, if my lips are moving and my teeth aren't, you're in trouble, right? Uh, the other thing that I like to do is postulate a, a little fable to them. Um, hey, Cooper, do you remember the story of the little boy who didn't listen to his dad about cleaning his room? And because he didn't listen to his dad, his dad spanked him until his arm fell off. Hmm. Daddy, I'm going to go to my room and clean it. Hey, I think that's a great idea, son. You know, you just kind of get creative, right? Like, hey, buddy, I'm just warning you here. This is what's in store for you if you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? And so we don't know if it was foretelling or forthtelling, but we know that God was communicating that this ruin was a result of man's sin. And so Israel would go through these cycles, right? They would go through these cycles where they would find themselves in a place of ruin like they were. They would repent. God would restore. They would have a period of rest where things were going good. And then they'd get comfortable and they'd forget God. And then they would rebel. And then God would give them, would, would respond again with, with, to their rebellion with ruin. Right? And on and on and on we go. And we read that. And as we read the Old Testament, we go, what were they thinking? Of course it's not going to happen differently the second time around or the third time around or the fourth time around. right? I would remind you that they would look toward us and say, what were they thinking? I mean, they don't just have God with them. They have God in them. Why are they continuing to fall for the same junk? But we see this cycle that when the result of our rebellion against God results in our ruin. Right? It brings us to the end of ourself. But that is not the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story for Joel. Secondly, let's look at the importance of man's repentance. Because when man finally repents, ruin brings us to the place of repentance. And let's see how important what he's calling the nation of Israel to do to respond to this ruin that God has brought about in their country and in their land. Joel 1, 14 through 15. Consecrate a fast. 
Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. In chapter 2 he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. It was a rallying cry that everybody that heard it from the mountain Zion, right, from, from the high place that heard the, the, the horn, the trumpet, would come and they would rally and they would be called to a time of repentance. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. This is the first reference of the day of the Lord. This is a theme that is found prominently in the book of Joel. And truthfully, it is hard to understand. Uh, in fact, I would argue that God uses 66 books of his Bible to figure for help to help us understand what the day of the Lord is. Um, because we like to think of the day of the Lord as something that's going to happen at the very end, right? At the very end, the judgment. Um, but that is not all that we see. There is, there is different stages and progressions. And so here's a definition. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to kind of paint it through an object lesson. But, but listen to this definition. The day of the Lord is a time or a period of time when God reveals his power, his sovereignty, his incontrolness of creation and man through his judgment and his, his, his punishment of the wicked and his blessing of the righteous. Okay? And so when we reference the day of the Lord, it is a period of time in history. It may be a long period of time in history where God is showing that he is in control. He is reigning and ruling. And in his rule, there is a time where the wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. Okay? Let me give you the way that my theology professor described it to me. And it, hopefully it makes sense to you, okay? Here is a, a picture. This is not what the day of the Lord looks like. Um, I, I, I don't know that it would be that cheerful um, or, or that beautiful, honestly. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, this is just a picture, okay? I want you to tell me what this is a picture of. Online, you can comment if you would like. People do that, you know, when you're on your, when you're in your Facebook black hole, people say, well, leave a like or comment or, yeah. Um, they're not going to do that. Um, what is it a picture of? Okay, it's a picture of the sunset, of, of the sun. You're exactly right. You're totally wrong. What's it a picture of? Somebody else? Give me something in the picture. Mountains. It's a picture of mountains. Y'all are exactly right. You're completely wrong. It's a picture of flowers that's lovely. Like I know that every man has for his wife tomorrow, right? They're a picture of flowers. Will's exactly right, but he's completely wrong. What is it? Creation? Sure. Sure, creation. But that's not all that God's created. Man, exactly right. Still not right. This is a whole picture of a lot of things. You could describe it as a landscape, I guess. Um, but the, the idea is when we look at this picture, we are seeing a lot of things going on, 
right? Uh, we're seeing things that are close. Now, we look at it as a 2D object, but we know that this is happening at somewhere on the earth. This was a 3D image. If somebody was there, they saw the, the sunflowers would be closer to them. The little lake was there after the sunflowers. You got the distant land. You got the trees in the background that nobody mentioned. You got the mountains. You got the sun. You got the clouds. You got the sky. Some of things, things are closer and some of them are further away, but they're all happening and we're looking at them at the same time. This is the idea of the day of the Lord. When we look at what Joel is describing, we are seeing not one thing. We're not just seeing the flowers. We're not just seeing the sun. We're seeing everything in between. And so there are times that the prophets would talk about the day of the Lord like they were happening right then. The fall of Samaria, the fall of Israel and Judah were considered end of the times, day of the Lord type events. Why? Because God was punishing wickedness and he was showing his sovereign rule over creation, right? And so this is what's even crazier. Like when you look at different events in the Bible that have scripture tied to them that looks like it's connected to the day of the Lord, you have things like the exodus from Egypt. Well, that's Regardless of the time that we think Joel was written, that was in the past for him, right? So the exodus in Egypt had God delivering, doing good for his people and harming the Egyptians, right? The wicked people. We see the conquest where they came in. It was good news for the Israelites. It was bad news for the Canaanites, Right? And so, and so there, there are things that throughout Israel's history get associated with it. I would argue that this picture is not just a picture of flowers. It's not just a picture of the sunset. It's a picture of all these things. And what we see is God's progressive sovereign rule throughout creation. It doesn't just happen at the end and it didn't just happen in the beginning but all throughout to prove that God is consistent. This is the idea of the day of the Lord, right? And so, and so whether this happened early or later, whether this had in mind an event that happened before for Joel or it happened after Joel or it even has not happened yet, it doesn't matter because it's all showing God's sovereign rule. God punishes wickedness and he rewards and blesses goodness and he is in control of it all. Listen to Joel chapter 2 verse 12. He begins talking about a, a, another power which many use that as an apocalyptic reference to this army from the north that would be the army of the beast that would come against God's people in the end days. Maybe it is or maybe he's talking about Assyria or maybe he's talking about Babylon. We don't really know. They all kind of come from the same area, right? But they're from the north. And so he talks about this, but listen how they are to respond. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What does he do? He tells them to repent. 
He doesn't say, hey, make sure that everybody knows that you're really sad that the destruction is coming upon you because you've been wicked. Don't just rend your clothes. That was a customary thing to do when you were in despair was to rip your clothing as a visual sign, I am sad, right? We do that now if you're a pro wrestler, but then I'm sad, I'll tear my clothes. And he says, look, you're really good at making people think you're sad, but you're not sad because your heart is unchanged. So leave your clothing the way that it is and tear your heart, not your garments. What he says there is, I'm not concerned. I'm, God is not interested in the show of repentance, but in the substance of repentance. I don't care if people think you're repenting. I care that you repent. I care about the position of your heart, not what's on the outside. The people of Israel had become very good at changing their actions for a moment, but their hearts were still bent against God. He said, repent, turn. Why do we return? And he responds with, he tells us why we return. Return to the Lord. Why? For he is gracious and merciful. This comes right out of, you can write this down. This is cool. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. This is an exact reference to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This is, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 is the most quoted scripture in all the Bible by the Bible. We find this characteristic of God more in the Bible than any other characteristic. It is quoted more times by the Bible than any other verse in the Bible. And what does it say? Return to the Lord for he is gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. This is character stuff. This is stuff that we respond and with repentance, not with our outward appearance, but with our heart condition. We respond, we repent, we rend our hearts, not our garments, and God restores. Why? Because this is who he is. Do you remember what Jonah told God? Remember after God had led a revival, he had led a revival through Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians who would one day overtake Israel, the northern kingdom, he gets mad at God and says, God, I knew you would do this. I knew if I went, this is why I didn't want to go in the first place, I knew that you would do this. And then he quotes Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Because I knew that you were a God who was slow to anger. You were abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were this way. I don't even like that you were this way, but I knew it. It was ingrained in who they were. It was quoted by the Bible, by Scripture, over and over and over again. So I knew you were this way. I can't believe you would be this way. So Joel, in a different perspective, is calling the people to repent because he knew God to be this way. Listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Between the vestibule, this is the place of prayer. This is where the nation of Israel would gather. Between the vestibule and the altar, the altar was the place where sin was dealt with. So from the place of prayer to the place of altar, to the place of, of offering yourselves, to offering your sacrifice, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword. 
among the nations. The word byword literally means a, par- a, a uh, parable, right? Like, don't allow or a proverb. Don't allow your people to become a proverb. What, what does he mean by that? God is saying, when the nations see how completely I destroy you, it will stand as a proverb, proverb to all nations, this is what happens when you cross the Lord. This is what happens when you refuse and you rebel against God. It becomes a, they become a byword. They become a proverb. It becomes a little story that people tell, by the way, don't mess with this God. Because if you rebel against him, this is what happens. Right? They were shamed. There was shame throughout the nations. Right? But what did we sing today? Right? You, sure, you turn shame into glory. This is the God that we serve. And so, yes, don't allow your people to be this byword, right? But respond to us because of your mercy. May we repent. May we turn the direction of our heart toward you again. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Don't allow us to be a reproach. I believe we could say the same of the church. That many in the church have become a byword to the lost. They've become a proverb. I don't want to go to this church or that church because they're all full of a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to do this or that because they live by a double standard. They say one thing on Sunday morning and they leave it another way. They say the Lord is the Lord of their life, but they live their life on their own terms. Becoming a parable a proverb to the nations. But then we do cross a great gulf of time, more than likely, into Joel chapter 2, into Joel chapter 3. And God begins to promise restoration. When we respond in rebellion, it is met with ruin. When we respond to ruin with repentance, it is met with restoration. Let's look Thirdly, at the assurance of God's restoration. Joel chapter 2, 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. Ultimately, they are mine, and I am theirs. They have responded in repentance. My blessing, my love, my covering will not be Away from them forever. Listen to what God promises to restore. Joel 20, verse 20, we see God promise his protection. This is his protection. And we don't know if this is the Assyrians, which God literally protected Judah from Assyria when when Hezekiah laid out all of the blasphemous things that Sennacherib had said. He said, God, what are you going to do about this? And God said, I got this. And he killed all of his army with one angel in one night, right? We don't know if this was Assyria in mind. We don't know if this is Babylon in mind, which was overcome by the Persians. We don't know if this is the end times. But listen what he says in Joel 2, verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea, meaning they gone. They ain't east or west, they gone. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise. They will be destroyed and they are rotting. They are done. They are done for. I will remove the enemy from you. I'm going to protect you. This is the completeness of God's restoration. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. But not just that. God promises his provision. 
Look at Joel 2, 24 through 26. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. Remember, remember chapter 1? Everything was desolate. Everything was laid to waste. There was no grain. There was no wine. There was no, there, there, there was no produce. There was no livestock. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. They will never again destroy themselves and their own reputation. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to provide for you. But he doesn't just promise that. He doesn't just promise things that tangible things that we can feel and we can experience like protection and provision. But God promises his presence. Listen to Joel 2, 27 through 29. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. How in the world was God's people ever going to not be put to shame? Because God would grant them his presence. Not a presence that would be removed. Remember the prophet that uh, spoke of the tragic words of the leaving of the Shekinah glory when Jerusalem was about to fall to the Babylonians. The prophet saw God's glory exit the temple. He's saying, never again are you going to be put to shame. Are you going to be a proverb to the nation? Are you going to be a byword? Because I am going to dwell in your midst and I'm not going anywhere. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. When did this happen? Now, there may be near and far fulfillment even in this. But Peter said on the day of Pentecost, we're not drunk with wine. What you are witnessing is what Joel talked about. You are getting the first glimpse of a person that has been filled with the Spirit of God. Not that the Spirit of God has come on them. That's happened a lot. But the Holy Spirit now resides within us. And this is what this looks like. The Spirit was poured out on all the people in the upper room. God's Spirit was poured out, and so His presence would be given to Israel. But here's the great thing. It wasn't just for the people that were Jewish. It wasn't just for the Hebrew. It was for the slaves. It was for the nations. It was for everyone. I will be poured out. My Spirit will be poured out on what? On all flesh. So Jew or Greek or Gentile or Scythian or slave, all would have access to the presence of the Spirit of the living God. I won't just be given for a time and be removed. No, I will be placed in you. And lastly, not just my promise of presence, but my promise of perseverance. I will remain in you. 
What did we just sing? Bailey sang. He is the only holy God. He's holy. He's completely holy. And he has no business with unholy things. He's the only separate God, sovereign. The day of the Lord, all throughout Scripture, proves his holiness, proves his separateness. Listen to Joel 3.17. This is at the end times when God is judging the nations. Valley, The valley of Jehoshaphat is a major player in the book of Revelation, end time prophecy stuff. Listen to what it says, though, of the nation of Israel. Listen to what it said of his people. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. Jerusalem has never experienced holiness. They've had got people in there that did good things from time to time. We serve the only holy God. Jerusalem has never been completely holy. We have never been completely holy. We are pulled down by our sin and our rebellion. But God is a God who restores us. He restores us and he allows us to be holy as he is holy. That only happens through his presence. I can't do it. You can't do it. Joel is looking through the history, through through the history of the human race. And it's looking to a time when Jerusalem, when God's people, when his church, by extension, according to Romans, that his church as well would be declared holy. They are righteous because a righteous God lives within them and they are set apart as he is set apart. And that is available to you today. God's presence, God's residing presence in you is available to you today if you would respond. If you would respond in faith, if you would repent, if you would tear not your garments, please don't do that, right? Keep your clothes on. Respond with repentance. Tear your heart. Tear your heart. Allow your heart to break for things that break God's heart. Would you come? Would you confess your sins? Would you respond to a love that has pursued you, that desires to restore you? And would you experience the restoration of God today? Not to be taken away from you, but to remain with you forever. This is the final promise of Joel. I can't wait for the day. God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh. And we will be holy as he is holy. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of things that are unclear. The timeline may vary. I have my opinion. You're welcome to yours. But what is consistent is the character of God that promises restoration for your heart and your soul. He offers protection. He offers provision. He offers his presence. 
And he promises great perseverance throughout your life if you would respond in repentance today. Maybe God has brought you to the place of ruin in your life. You look, maybe your life is in shambles. Maybe God has brought you to that place so that you would respond with repentance. And he would bring restoration to your soul. Whoever's in here, whatever you're going through, I would ask that you would respond to Jesus today. Respond to a God who loves you and gave himself for you. All this is all this has been purchased for you through the blood of Jesus Christ if you would just surrender yourself to him today. So if you're here and you need to make any decisions for Christ, I'm here, we've got counselors waiting, we'd love to talk to you. And any decision that you need to make for Christ. Father, have your will and way in this service and this invitation. Get us out of the way. God, may we just do business with you. I pray for the person that needs a relationship with you. They need to respond. They need to let somebody know how they can have a relationship with Christ that you offer today. Pray for the person that needs to respond to the message of forgiveness. God, that needs restoration today. God, for the one that needs to realign their life and get their life back on track. Lord, you provide the grace to do just that. So, Lord, whether it's time spent at this altar as you draw people to come and lay down things in their life to intercede for others that we know that need that restoration, God, I thank you that you're a God who restores. God, I pray that we would see that restoration today in this time as we respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we sing, this time is for you. Would you respond?